Good evening. A new year started. We finished Rosh Hashanah, we finished Kippur, we finished Elul. Now it's Sukkot. Why Sukkot comes right after the 40 days of repentance? Because Sukkot should have been around Pesach. It's the time of the, of the spring. It's Yat Mitzrayim, the exodus of Egypt. It has to be Chag Aviv. Pesach, it's the spring holiday. Why it falls right now, close to the... You know, it's like kind of the beginning of the winter. The first rain in Israel usually is in the week of Sukkot. Because one way to make tshuva, one of the best ways to make tshuva is to go to the exile. Many of us are here living out of Israel. A part of our punishment is that we live here. We, we not always feel it, unfortunately. But the very righteous people, they suffer when they're out of Israel. Not only when they're out of Israel, when they're out of Yerushalayim, they already begin to suffer. It's like their soul feels it. And I know a few that don't refuse to leave Yerushalayim for no matter what, the wedding, kivrot tzadikim, going all kinds of... They don't, they don't want to leave. They stay only on, all the time in Yerushalayim. Leaving the beautiful house going outside, sitting in a sukkah. In America, it's eight days. In Israel, seven days. Sitting in a sukkah, out of your home, out of your comfortable couch, not allowed to sleep even half an hour out of the sukkah, even one minute out of the sukkah, all week, just, I'm talking men. For the man, he has to sleep, if he wants to nap, to sleep only in a sukkah. All the food in a sukkah, every time we eat bread in a sukkah. Basically, we live our comfortable life, and we're going to, to sit outside. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold. We'll clarify some of the halachot, some of the laws that applies to Sukkot. Uh, I have a feeling that not everybody is well known about all this halachot uh, of Sukkot. So first thing you should know, uh, the idea of Sukkot is going to the exile. There are two reasons for the holiday Sukkot, two reasons. One reason, as the Torah says, I made my children sit in a Sukkot. So what really was the Sukkot? Was the Sukkot like we build from wood, from metal, and we put schach? Is this the Sukkot that they, they used to have? No, they didn't need to build Sukkot. First of all, you know, they didn't have all the two-by-fours, all the pieces of wood that we have. We go to Home Depot, we buy it, it's all complete, connected, screws, drills. Very easy today. Most people don't, would just pay a few dollars and, and the kids build it for them. They don't have to even bother. Building it in the desert is not exactly so simple, but you don't really need to. The whole idea of Sukkot was that there was Ananea Kavot, seven different clouds. And one of the clouds was the shade, that they made always shade. And you know, in a desert, it's very hot. So it's not only that it makes shade and you don't feel the, the heat at all, it cools the air, because the whole idea of air condition, that it's like, uh, it's water. It's, water. it's like steam, not hot. And the water are cooling the whole system with the freon, but this is the idea of air condition. You know, sometimes you walk in the street, you see the sprinkle system working, it makes some water flies all over, you know, and then you feel it cools the face in the hot days. You know, I remember I was in, uh, in Florida, in Boca, I had to go 25 minutes to the, to the shul. Just when I felt I'm fainting from the heat over there, the sprinkle system was working. No matter how you try to avoid it, it comes from both sides of the street. It's 
cold water in the face. <laughs> Believe me, you don't care about your suit. You just want to breathe for one minute. So imagine something like this all the time. One cloud makes the, the ground straight. One cloud cleans the clothes, you know. After all, you get dirty. You're not exactly inside your house. You walk, so it cleans the clothes. So every cloud has a, has a, has a reason. And it's called Ananea Kavod. This clouds showing the, the honor of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Why? Look, he's taking care of them, and they don't have to suffer while they're walking in the desert. So that's why the most important mitzvah in a sukkah is the schach. The schach, not the, the, the walls. The walls is important, but the main thing is the schach. Almost all the halachot is around the cover, the schach. It has to be natural, without metal, without anything that receiving it, to mind, purity. You know, even when they do, when they make these mats, they connected with natural things, not with the plastic or with metal. They connected with natural things. And even if they connected with natural things, it's still not enough. Because when they created, the manufacturer that makes those mats, if he makes it for Japanese people, that they like to put it on the floor and walk on it, or whatever the case is, and then Jews found it, and they said, oh, that can be great for schach. It's not, we're not Yotzei de Chova. It's not good, not kosher. Why? The same mat. You make the mat, and they make it. The same exact thing, same ingredients, same concept, everything the same. Only one thing is different. The Japanese made it in his line for people to put it on the floor or in the front of their house. And we made it knowing we're going to use it for schach. The knowledge, the machshava, the thinking, what are we making it for, makes it kosher or not kosher. Now, if you don't know, if you got mixed, you have a serious problem. You sat all day in the sukkah, all week, and in the end, you didn't keep the mitzvah. You did not fulfill the mitzvah. So you see that the whole idea is very important. The sides can be from everything. can be from metal, can be from wood, can be from glass, can be from uh, canvas, can be from so many different things, even from plastics, from aluminum, almost everything. It doesn't matter. You receive too much, not receive too much, no problem. As long as it stays still in a normal wind, it doesn't move more than three tfachim. This is a tefach, a size of my... Of, a, of an average person, a feast, I would say four to five inches, let's say, times three, it gives us 12 to 15 inches. If the, if the canvas is loose and the wind moves it more than 12 to 15 inches, then it's, the sukkah is not kosher. It has to be still. You have to feel like it's a house. You build it, it's a place of a house, not just a place to be there for two, three minutes and the wind comes and it falls. Okay, so this is it. On top of it, on top of it, uh, the idea is when we sit in a sukkah, we have to be under the schach, which means if we hang all kinds of things and they go below the schach for more than three tfachim, also 15 inches below the schach, and we sit under that, let's say we put all this beautiful decoration for the sukkah, it doesn't count we sit in the sukkah because we sit under the beautiful decoration or a big round light or chandelier or whatever you put inside, you have to make sure you have to sit under the schach. Also when a person sleep in a sukkah, well, first of all we must sleep in a sukkah for the men. The man has to sleep in a sukkah. And 
The only way a person cannot sleep in a sukkah or doesn't have to sleep in a sukkah is if it's freezing, freezing, or much cold that you can get sick, or for after you build the sukkah, the sewer started to come out and it became very bad smell. The person cannot breathe over there. There's no way to correct the problem. So that sukkah is not good for holiday anymore because the halacha is mitzta'er patur ma'asukkah. Someone who suffers inside the sukkah, not because he's crazy. Normal person that goes and people come there and they suffer inside the sukkah, they don't have to sit inside. What makes you suffer? Millions of bees coming. There's no way to handle it. You're dismissed. Freezing. Very, very hot. You choke. You cannot breathe. No? Raining. That's a very popular thing here in America. Almost every week it rains. Once it rains, not only you don't have to sit in a sukkah, you're not allowed to sit in a sukkah. What happens if you started the meal and it started to rain? When do you have to move in? When the drops starting to fall from the, from the schach into your soup, into your meal, that you really feel the water are coming now. At that moment on, you take the meal inside and you continue inside the house. But the first night, which is critical, the first night, which in our case is Wednesday night, if it's raining, a person cannot start the meal. He has to wait until midnight. Even if it takes two, three, four hours, he still has to wait before he starts the meal. I know it's difficult. I know the kids are waiting. We know all that. But since the first night there's an obligation to eat, bread inside the sukkah, it's the same thing like eating matzah in Lela Pesach, same obligation. We learn it from the same pasuk, two psukim that have the same words, 15 and 15. That means the same rules apply to eating matzah on Pesach, eating on sukkah the first night, which means we have to eat two ounces of bread to make the mitzvah. If we don't do it in the first night, that's it, we miss this mitzvah. The second night, the third night is all the Rabbanan. It's not from the Torah anymore. One meal, the first night, is an obligation to the Torah. It's just like eating matzah and lela seder. That's why we have to wait as much as we can. When is it? Jewish midnight, which in that kind, not in today, it's like 12.50, 12.50 a.m. And up to then. But, you know, sometimes you have 10 minutes of break. If the sukkah is covered, so everything is dry, nice. As soon as the rain stops, oh, it became very, very... You can go five minutes inside, make quickly a mozi, eat two ounces of bread, and then you can go in. You fulfill the mitzvah. It takes five minutes, no more than that. All you need to find is five minutes that it's not heavily raining, and it's not so, you know, it's not going to make you suffer, and that's it, and you go in. Uh, sometimes flies, mosquitoes, other things that makes a person suffer, especially if he's a spoiled person, then it gives him uh, dismiss from the sukkah. He can go and can move inside and sleep. Uh, you know, other than that, people that are on the road, in the old days it was very common. People used to go on camels, on horses. They go two months, three months on the road from one city to another until they get to their destination. People that are traveling, they are dismissed from the sukkah. Same thing. But, you know, sukkah, it's not so difficult to make. Today, they even have sukkot so that it can be a suitcase. You open it up, it opens your sukkah. You take a little mat, you put it inside. It can be three, four feet. It can be a size of a... You don't even need to fit your whole body. It's enough you fit your body from the belt to the head, inside. The legs can be outside. 
most of your body are inside. You eat, you count the mitzvah. Now let's explain what food we have to eat inside the sukkah, what food we can eat out of the sukkah. There's a little bit difference between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim. Main thing, everybody understand that when you eat bread, when you eat one ounce and more, one ounce of bread and more, you must eat in a sukkah. And men, women don't make bracha lishev basukkah, the Ashkenazim do make. Because Ashkenazim, even the mitzvot that the ladies are not obligated, they still make bracha. Some of them, not all of them. Because they hold that it's still praising Hashem. And even though the woman is not obligated, since the entire nation of Israel is obligated, so she makes the bracha to praise Hashem. Fine. So the Sephardi women are not allowed to make bracha to sit in a sukkah. So they just sit, they make a motzi, they eat, fine. Then, what happens when we eat cake? Let's see, honey cake, sponge cake, all these cakes that has mezonot in it. We don't make the bracha lishev basuka, Sfaradim. The Ashkenazim do make. That's the, that's the main difference. Ashkenazim that eat more than uh, one ounce of, of cake, which is making him full even for a few minutes, he makes a bracha lishev basuka. Sfaradim only on bread. Cake, we still need sukkah, but we sit, and we sit without bracha. We don't make bracha lishev basuka, we just eat the cake, we make mezonot, ala michia, and we come out and finish. All the other things, like fruits, water, drinks, uh, even a person eats chicken with rice, technically it's always better to eat in a sukkah. It shows Hashem you love the mitzvah. But let's say you're not there, you went to, I don't know, restaurant, and the sukkah is packed, you want to eat without bread. You just want to eat uh, chicken with rice, chicken with french fries, things like this, without bread. Technically you can eat without, out of the sukkah. Righteous people don't even drink one sip of water out of the sukkah all week. Very careful. The Gaon Mivilna did not leave the sukkah all week. He said, how can I leave the sukkah? Because the Torah told us it's Ananea Kavod. It's the spirit of Hashem above us. How can I leave a place like this? He was eating there, learning there, praying there, doing everything in a sukkah. Also, when we eat in a sukkah, we have to bring nice utensils, nice plates, nice dishes when we serve. Like we are in our dining room, not because it's a sukkah, so everything is plastic and paper, to show disrespect for the sukkah. So you have to be like you're sitting in your main table, like a Shabbos meal or, or, or Pesach meal. You do it inside, you gotta, you gotta do it inside. This is the way it is. So this is briefly about it. Now we have also a mitzvah of Arbat Aminim. We have to take the lulav. It comes from the date trees, the palm trees that you see in Florida, in L.A., you see a lot of these high trees in Israel, David. So the, the leaves of that, it's not really leaves, it's like sticks falling, falling from all over. That's called lulavim. Kapot marim. That's what the Torah says. This is the lulav. It looks like a sword, exactly like a sword. And then we need to take arava. Arava is special leaves that grow next to the lakes next to the legs, some of them on a tree, some of them from the ground, like a bush, arava, it looks long, like lips, shape of a lips. So that's the arava. Then we have adasim, it's great smell, adasim, that have three leaves come from the same line, it's like a beautiful stripe, and three coming from all over, green, nice, with beautiful, great smell, it's called hadas. And then we have the etrog, etrog, it's a priadar, 
הדר in Hebrew means beautiful, מהודר, מצוות, מהדר במצוות means does it in extra beauty, with extra beauty. Chazal knows, according to the oral Torah, because in a written Torah you would not know what fruit Hashem is talking about. That's why I always say without the oral Torah there's nothing you can do. So we know that it's a trog. Why we have these four Arbat Aminim, and we have to hold them together, the secret here, there's few secrets here. One secret is the lulav, it's like the spine, shape of a spine, long and, you know, straight. And then the arava looks like the lips, so it's the mouth. And the adasim, it's shorter, it's not long like the lips, it's shorter, so it's like the eyes. Each leaf looks exactly like the shape of the eye. And the etrog looks like the heart. So it's taking the spine, the heart, the eyes and the mouth, the important parts of a person, and this is one secret about those four things. One other thing is, each one of them symbolizes a different kind of person. Some people have no Torah and no Derech Eretz, nothing whatsoever. You check what positive about this person, nothing. Nothing learn Torah, complete ignorant, and horrible midot, arrogant, you cannot find one nice thing about him. That's Arava. No smell, no taste. Nothing. Then you have people who have nice midot, beautiful midot, but they don't know Torah. They're busy. They don't learn. But they're very nice people. They're generous. They're nice. They help. They have a great behaving. But no Torah. What is it? Adasim. It's pleasant to be around them. But there's really no taste in Adas. Then you have people who have Torah, but no Midot. They know a lot of Torah, but they still behave very bad. They're prejudiced, they're egoistic, they're lazy, but they learn a lot of Torah because they love to learn Torah. Torah is great to learn. It's a great pleasure. Once you get into it, that's it. You cannot live a day without it. If you're smart, it's even more, you get even more addicted to it because everything comes too easy, so you really enjoy from it. It's not a burden. You don't have to kill yourself. You understand, you see it, you learn. You think a few minutes and you understand what's going on. So the tmarim, the dates, has great taste, no smell. And then comes the etrog. Beautiful. One of the nicest smells you can smell in a fruit which is a combination of lemon and some perfume mixed together. And then you have, then you have also taste in it. So it has good, good smell and good taste. This is the Talmidei Chachamim, people that knows lots of Torah and also have great manners. You put them together, together, people that have nothing, people that have everything, people that have Torah only, people who have manners only, everything together, united, unity. That's why you have to hold them together. If you're not holding them together, if you hold the Lulav and the Adas and the Arava in one hand, and you did not attach the etrog to it, you did not fulfill the mitzvah. It has to be together. You have to hold them together. This is the secret of Arbat Amini. There's many other secrets, but this is just to give us an idea about this mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that you do once a year. A person has to own it. If he used this set from someone else, he's not, he's not fulfilling the mitzvah. But there's a nice trick. If a person cannot afford 
or he forgot he's at home, or he went to stay by his friends, it went to Yom Tov and he forgot to bring it from home, or he got lost, whatever the case may be. Now he doesn't have a set, but he still is obligated to make the mitzvah. So what does he have to do? What he has to do is, the person who let him use his set has to tell him, Matana al-menat This is a gift, and later you give it back to me as a gift. Which means, as I'm giving it to you, you got it, it's a gift. I gave it to you as a gift, it's yours now. You make the mitzvah, and then you give it back to me and say, I'm giving it to you back as a gift. What happened if he's a crook? He got it as a gift and said, I don't want to give it to you. I want to keep it. There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. You cannot sue him. You told him it's a gift. So obviously, you have to trust who you give it to. This is briefly, you know, there's a lot more to say. This is briefly. What happened if there's no room in a sukkah for everyone? More people came, guests. The man is first priority, why they are obligated to be in Israel. Women are not obligated. If there's room for everyone, fine. Sometimes a part of the sukkah is under the roof of the house. Let's say you have it in your deck, and a part of the roof comes out of the house. If you see it, you can be under the schach, but that part of the schach is under the roof of the house. It doesn't count mitzvah. Why? Because you have to be under the schach, which is under the sky. What happens if you have a big, large tree and the branches of the tree expands all over and you're in your backyard, the only place you have to make the sukkah is in your backyard, but there's a huge tree above, it doesn't count mitzvah. You're wasting your time. You sit in the sukkah, all the brachot you made is waste. Brachot levatala. Why? Because the schach must be under the sky. One more thing, the schach has to cover most of the sukkah to be shed, which means if it's sunny and the sun goes direct on the schach, and you see on the sukkah more sun than shadow, than shed, it's not kosher. You have to add more schach. The schach that you put cannot be stolen, cannot be taken without permission for people. If you took it from your friend's backyard and you put it, it didn't count a mitzvah, has to be yours. The schach cannot, sukkah gnuvai, can be, cannot be yours. However, if your friend went away, your neighbor, to LA, and you don't have sukkah, and you went into his sukkah without permission, you made a sin. Going into his house, into his territory without permission, is like, it's called a sagat gvul. But if you ate bread on the first night of sukkot in his sukkah, even though you did it while you're violating his privacy and invade his, his territory there, but the mitzvah count, because when you did the mitzvah inside his sukkah, you sat under the sukkah, and you made the mitzvah, okay. What happened if you stole the, the woods and you built a sukkah and your neighbor found that it's his and he came to you and said, hey, this is all mine, take it apart, I want it back. So you tell him, no, no, here, let me give you two, three hundred dollars, whatever it costs, plus the delivery, whatever it costs, get, go get new ones. Here, I'm paying you for everything, you don't have to lose a penny. Call the store, tell them to deliver, I'll pay everything. He said, no, 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 my friend, I'll teach you a lesson. I want this one back. Take it apart. What's the rule? What do you say? Huh? <laughs> Technically, you're right. If you build a building the size of the Empire State Building, and one screw was stolen, and the owner of the screw proved that it's his, you stole it from his box, you have to take apart the entire building and give him the screw. 
you must give it back. But we lucky that the Chachamim, with Hashem's authority, Hashem gave the sages the, the power to make decrees and halachot. The Chachamim knew nobody will keep this halacha. They know the psychology of people. And the most righteous person won't take the Empire State Building apart for a screw that worth a quarter or ten cents, right? Just because that person is stubborn and he doesn't want to receive a, a quarter to leave me alone and get an, another screw in a store, because of that I'm going to take off the whole building. So the Chachamim say, just throw it to him. He want to take it, it's fine. He doesn't want to take it, it's his problem. Here is your money, leave me alone. Uh, okay, so because you stole the pieces and you build a sukkah and he comes and he want to take it, you don't have to take it apart. You give him your money. Here is your money. Go build another sukkah. However, what happened if you took three of your friends? Each one of you picked up one leg of the sukkah, and you picked. And let's say it wasn't such a heavy sukkah. You picked it up in the air, and you went to your territory. You put it in, and now he comes and says, "I want the sukkah back." He says, "Here is your money. Here is two, three hundred dollars, whatever it costs. Here is your money. You must give him the original sukkah." If you don't, it didn't count for you a mitzvah. Why? What's the difference? Because over here you have no excuse. What did you do? You didn't build, you didn't start putting it together, you're working, you're sweating. There's no reason for you not to give back. You did not do anything. You took it here and put it here. Return it. But after you work, they knew that you won't return it. So they say, just give the money, at least you don't steal from the Torah, you don't steal this thing. Also, you should know, in a shul, every morning before we go to shul, first of all, you know, you have, in, a, in exile, you have two days, Yom Tov, and then you have five days in between, which the last day of the five days is called Lel Hoshana Rabbah. It's the night that we stay up all night and learn Torah, it's not Yom Tov, it's Chol HaMoed. You can drive to the shul with a car. If you want to go to friends far away, you can drive. And you'll stay up all night, you learn, and then we pray nets, which right now, it will start around 6 o'clock in the morning. We'll be finished around 9. It's very long prayers. Because we circle around the bima seven times. Every day in Chol HaMoed, we go with the lulav one time around. Everybody say, oh, Shana, oh, Shana, it's the Minag of Sukkot. But the last day, it's called Oshana Rabbah, we do seven times. So it takes an extra 40 minutes at least just there. Then we land, then we have Halel. Every day before we go to the shul, we have our sukkah, we make the bracha every day. First day we say Shecheyanu on the mitzvah. The women that wants to do the mitzvah, they do it without bracha. The Sfaradim, Ashkenazi, if she wants to do it. According to Avovadi Yosef, it's bracha levatala. She's taking a risk by making a sin here. Because it's not so simple to make a bracha just because you love Hashem. If it's not mandatory, it's not, if you're not obligated and you say bracha, it's considered bracha levatala. Let them do what their custom is. But since, you know, I'm speaking to both kinds of Jews, the Sfaradim should know that the women that wants to do the mitzvah without bracha. Not shecheyanu, not al netilat lulav. Just take it and do it. We do it to four corners, up and down. The Sidurim gives ex explanation how to do it. I think I cover most of the important things. Like I said, there's a lot more to say, but I want to continue to speak about other things. Uh, you know, I 
today we find something very interesting is happening. You know, the Torah is divided to four different categories. Four different categories. What is it? It's abbreviation pardes. Pshat, remez, drash, and sod. Pshat is the simple understanding of the Torah. Remez is clues, hints inside the text. Hints. Why this word is so many times? Why this word? All kinds of hints about certain things inside the text. Then we have drash, secrets. What really happened? Hashem say a few words, Abraham say a few words, but there's a lot more there. The Torah didn't describe you the whole dialogue there. The Torah told you just the subject. One or two verses, finished. Torah is very short. Torah doesn't have time to tell you every story from A to Z. The size of the Torah will be all the way from here to Manhattan. So the Torah is very, very short. However, if you want to know in every scenario what exactly happened, it's called Midrashim. Drash. Midrashim, also Drashot, Chazal, they learn secrets. This is all oral Torah. It went from generation to generation. And then we have the Sod. Sod means Kabbalah. Kabbalah is a general word. It includes many things in it. But mainly it's the secret. It's a, it's a very, very holy learning. It doesn't apply to most Jews. Very, very small percentage of the Jews can deal with that. I made a whole lecture about it. Who is, a, who, who is, is entitled to learn? He has to be 40 years old. He has to be married. He has to have kids. He has to finish the entire Torah. Gemara, Shas, Talmud, Mishnah, Chumash, Halakha. knows everything. After that, he starts with the Kabbalah. That's the last thing on the list. Ah, just right away. But today we find something very, very strange. What do we find? We find Baalei Tshuva. Baalei Tshuva. Most of the Baalei Tshuva today in this generation, without a doubt, from a hundred Baalei Tshuva, more than 90 of them are Sfaradim. Very small percentage of Ashkenazim, but very large percentage of Sfaradim. I can tell you from 15 years' experience, this is it. I can look at my last 15 years. I sold uh, maybe a thousand pairs of tefillin over the years to all the Baalei Tshuva that Hashem helped me to make. It's not everyone bought from me tefillin, but them, the friends. The f- I can count not even 30 pairs of Ashkenazi pairs. Almost all of them were Sfaradi. So just to give you the ratio, what's going on? Why do I tell you this? Because we find that many of these Baalei Tshuva, after a year or two, that they know a little bit from Judaism, they hardly know anything. Just be, they are on the lowest level, the beginners. What do they do? They go to learn Kabbalah. Very interesting. For every ten guys, you hear half of them are messing with Kabbalah. You want to be a brain surgeon before you know what an Advil is? How can it be? It doesn't make sense. Now you may ask, why the rabbis that teach this Kabbalah accept them to teach them? Why? First, because they want to feel they do something. They want to have students. What attracts the people? Only saying Kabbalah. If you, say, if you write in a flyer, the lecture will be about Kabbalah. Right away, you have ten times more people. If you say Halacha, 
seven people show up. You say Kabbalah, 70 people show up. Why? Atlas, even the Goim, Kabbalah, Kabbalah, became a very big business. So I heard something very, very, very nice. Who is really dealing with Kabbalah? Not the Ashkenazim, the Hasidim, which they also Ashkenazim, but Hasidim is different than Litaim, Litvish, completely different Minagim. It's just as different as the difference between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim. The Hasidim and Ashkenazim is also very different. Sfarad and Ashkenaz. Who, who like to deal with Kabbalah even if they don't have the minimum mandatory knowledge? Who? Sfaradim and Hasidim. Like Chabad. Baal Tshuva, two days, he just started to keep Shabbat yesterday. A week after, they invited him to Tanya, to learn Tanya. Tanya is very high Kabbalah, very holy book. Very high level. They do not. They do not do know how. To, they don't know how to read Hebrew. They don't know how to read Rashi. They don't know in a Gemara how to hold the page. A week later, they sit and learn Tanya or Likutei Moharan. <laughs> What's going on here? It's sad, but it's really a joke. But I saw something very interesting. The right way to learn the Torah, as I told you, it's Pardes. Pay. Resh, Dalet, Samech. Pshat, Remez, Drash, Vesod. What does it mean, Sfarad? Who does know Sfarad? Sfaradim and the Hasidim. Sfarad is the opposite order. Instead of Pardes, the same letter. Sfarad and Pardes, the same letters. First, Samech. Right away, wants to start Sod. Then Pshat. That's the secret. Everything has a secret in it. I, I never, for years I didn't see it. Only recently I saw it in one of the books. I didn't know if to laugh or to cry. But it's so true. So true. So even the name indicates who we are. Before he learned Pshad, before he knows who's the wife of Abraham Avinu, already learned the Zohar. Tikkuneh Zohar. <laughs> What's going on? Then... We have, an, we have another interesting thing here. You know, when we pray, there is a special halacha. Almost nobody keeps it, unfortunately. People don't have patience today. That's the reason they don't keep this halacha. What's the halacha? And when a person prays Shmonaisre, standing, and he prays in front of Hashem, Hashem Sfatai Tiftach, he's not allowed to pass in front of him Arba Amot. Arba Amot means meter and 92 centimeter, which is six feet. Six feet, six feet, maybe three steps. Why? Why you're not allowed to, step, to walk in a shul, or if they're praying in a house, or anywhere it's going to be, even outside, in the backyard, people are praying. You're not allowed to walk in front of a person who prays. Two reasons. One reason is you disturb his, his kavanah, his intention. He's in the middle of thinking about the words. Somebody walk, automatically his attention goes to that person. Who is he? What is he doing here? Why is he walking here? What is he doing? Right away, disturb your thinking. But what happens if a person prays with very close eyes all the time? That's his always praying. He knows all the words by heart. He closes his eyes and he prays. And you want to pass. Technically, you would say, since I don't disturb his attention, he doesn't see me anyway, what's the problem? Still not allowed. Still not allowed. 
Why is it? What's the secret here? Shulchan Aruch say, because the Shechina is in front of him. The Shechina, the spirit of Hashem, comes right in front of him. Spirit is something spiritual. You cannot touch it. You cannot see it. You cannot smell it. It's spirituality. It's like you cannot see a soul. If a person dies and his soul came out, you're in a room, you cannot see it. But the spirit of Hashem, which is very high thing, even higher than the soul, is right in front of him. So actually, when you walk into that territory, which is six feet in front of him, you're walking right into the Shekhinah. But the interesting thing here that I saw is, it's very interesting. It didn't say that only the holy rabbis have the Shekhinah in front of them. It didn't say only people who knows the whole Torah. He didn't say only, only righteous people. Every Jew. The guy from the kibbutz with the earring, all his hands tattoo, jeans and sandals. He, he decided to pray once in a blue moon. You're not allowed to walk in front of him. Why? Even in front of that Jew, the Shekhinah comes. To show you the importance of the prayer. It's very, very important. Then, another very interesting thing is... There used to be a man that used to advertise in New York Times in the front page every Shabbat, every Friday the newspaper comes out, there is a square in the front page, lady, Jewish ladies, please don't forget to light candle. Shabbos candle, such and such time, he advertised the time and he writes like a warning, a reminder, do not forget to light Shabbos candle, I think it was for, for women who didn't have kids, so that's gula to light Shabbos candle. Why? Because they say that if somebody is zahir, bener, or beyain, it brings him banim talmidei chachamim. Which means if he doesn't have kids, this is a gula to have kids. Say if you light candles, it's bracha for the kids. No, since you don't have kids, Hashem has to give you kids to bless the kids, as He promised. No. So He, he advertised. After a few years that he was doing it, he stopped. Budget problem, he couldn't afford anymore, whatever the case was. Then, in the year 2000, 11 years ago, we are in, what is it, 2010? 11 years, exactly 11 years ago, New York Times, on the year 2000, remember how everyone was panicking? It's going to turn into 2000, nobody knew what's going to happen, it was on Shabbat. You remember that or no? How do I remember? I was nervous the whole Shabbat, what's going to happen? Motsi Shabbos, we couldn't listen to the radio, couldn't hear the news. Goim already knew from Friday night at midnight what happened. Well, we didn't know anything. Once is very quiet, you don't have car here, you could know. If something happened, you see on the street right away, the Goim will tell you. But where I live, there's no Goim. There's no cars in Shabbat. You walk all over, you see nobody, you don't see Goim. Just see Haredim Jews all over, more than 50,000. So nobody really knew. I kind of knew a little bit because I checked the news in Australia before Shabbat started. Over there it's many hours ahead. And I saw that in Australia the world did not end. Still, you know, the computer did not collapse. They managed. I say, if in Australia they managed, in America for sure. Still we didn't know for sure. They were telling you, you come to your bank account, everything get wider. I didn't have that much to worry about, but there's some people in Monsi, if they turn the computer and Motsi Shabbat, they see all the digits disappeared, 
That's a big problem. Anyway, why I'm telling you this? <laughs> so they asked the New York Times, please, they publish three different editions. The edition that they published in the year 1900, the last uh, day, uh, century, in the year 1900, they reprinted the day of the 2000, when it became 2000, that Shabbat, New York Times, and New York Times for the year 2100, 100 years forward. So now we have three New York Times that were printed in a store in the same day together. I don't know if you remember that. What was the point? Good memory, how, you, how New York Times used to be 100 years ago. No cars, very primitive world. You see, look, you see what they printed in the year 1900, you laugh. Uh, you know, people had horses. Uh, searching to sell a horse with a carriage, $2.50. <laughs> how much it was, 1900. It's funny to look at that, how the world changed in 100 years. But then they printed an edition, what's going to happen in 100 years? So, so that's all in imagination, you know. So they say it's like a, a, a car that flies 2,000 miles a minute. It flies, it goes as high, you know, they, like it's a spaceship, every car can fly. Uh, you know, people can fly, they put something on their back, they fly. So they make a newspaper that looks like very advanced. But then in the front page, there was an ad. Jewish ladies, please don't forget to light Shabbat candle in the year 2100. So when the Jews saw that, they couldn't believe it. So, ah. so they checked, who is the editor of New York Times, a Jew or a guy? It was a goy, not a Jew. So they went to that goy. Some rabbis went to ask him, hey, excuse me, Mr. Chris Williams, whatever his name was, why did you publish next to the spaceships and all these things in the year 2000? You put an ad, Jewish ladies, don't forget to light Shabbos candle. So he said to them, I tell you, I was trying to think what's going to happen in the year 2000 and, uh, 2100. So I thought cars will fly, for sure. Now with all this traffic, they'll be able to fly. People would fly. The world will be very advanced. But one thing for sure will still be here. Jewish ladies and the Shabbat of the Jews, it's so long in history, for sure it's still going to be there. And I remember that we used to publish it in the front page. And I say something like this, for sure it's possible to be here to The guy understand. The Jews are eternal. You understand? It's a true story. That it happens. Very interesting. You know, I want to ask you a question. You know, you know bicycle of nine. Bicycle. Everything in life that you just don't pay attention to, if you really focus on it, you see that you can learn something for life from it. Something for life. Almost everything you tell me, you give me a few minutes to think, I'll tell you what you can learn from this to your spiritual life. Please tell me, what can you learn from bicycle? What's special for bicycle that you can learn from it to our life as Jews? The what do you see? Balance is the one most important thing for... Balance? It could be nice, balance. But no, what else? If it's hard, 
That means you're going higher, up. If it's easy, that means you're going down. To grow, it has to be difficult. Nobody can sit home, smoke a cigar, watching television and become Rabbi Ovadia. It doesn't work. You want to be Rabbi Ovadia? You have to sweat 78 years from morning to midnight. Break your head. Don't sleep well. Don't eat well. Kill yourself on a Torah. That's the only way to go. Otherwise, how can you go? How a person can go? Did you ever see a wealthy person that is in business that he became Talmud Chacham? One in history. Did you see? Who became? The Gemara says, Be very careful in all the little poor kids. Because one or two or ten of them will be one day the chief rabbis. Why? Their chance is much higher than the wealthy kids to become Talmud Chachamim. Because the wealthy kids are not, not interested to sweat. They like it easy. They don't want to sweat and kill themselves. Almost never. You can never see such a thing. So from bicycle you learn that. What do you learn from checkers? Damka, checkers. What do you learn from checkers? I'll tell you what you learn from checkers. You learn from checkers that in the beginning you can only go forward but one step at a time. Cannot rush. One step. You cannot go back. Only forward. But once you get to the top, then you can go wild. You can go anywhere you want. If you want to be a king, king, the Torah said, there are three crowns the nation of Israel received. Crown of Keuna, crown of the king, crown of Kohen, crown of the king, and crown of the Talmud Chacham. We're talking now in a crown of the Talmud Chacham. You want to reach that king, that crown, to be a king, to be a master? The only way to get there is, like, a, like they say in Spanish, poco poco. Slowly but surely. Don't rush. You come to the yeshiva after one year, you want to be the chief rabbi, my friend. You have no foundation, you collapse. Right away after a week, beard, black hat, doesn't eat this, doesn't eat that. Fanatic. What happened two or three years later? In one shot he collapsed. It wasn't a tool to receive so much in one shot. It's impossible. Impossible. So you have to build yourself in the right way. Never to stand, never to stop, constantly to move. Once you become a king, you know how the king goes. Anywhere you go, up, down. It's in full control. This is how it goes. Not only that, you know, we say in a song, Kol haolam kulo gesher tsar meod. The whole world, it's like a narrow bridge. That's, that's the song that we sing on Shabbos. It's, it's the song of Rabbi Nachman Mibreslev wrote 250 years ago. Why we sing Kol haolam, the whole world is a narrow bridge. Why we don't say the whole world is a narrow road? Why it has to be a bridge? It can be a narrow road. What's the idea? The narrow? You're focusing on the narrow? It can be a road. So obviously we, there's a, something, it's, it's, it symbolizes something, the bridge. The answer is, on the road, you can stop anytime you want. You want to stop, you get on the side of the road, you park, you sleep. No problem. You're not disturbing the traffic. On the bridge, you cannot stop for one second. You must move forward all the time. There's no stopping. There's no reverse, no stopping. Always forward and all the time. 
This is what he says in the song. You want to be successful, you have to understand the world is a narrow bridge. On a bridge, you don't rest. You hear X amount of years, you're here to gain something, you don't want to waste even one hour, one minute, one day, one month, nothing. Always grow. And to grow, it's like the bicycle. When you go up the hill, it's very difficult. Oh, now I'm going. Same thing, the muscles. When the muscles become strong and puffy, when it's difficult. If a person lifts one pound, he <laughs> goes to the gym, <sighs> well, like this. Nothing, it doesn't, it's not effective. When it's going to be effective, when it's 30 pounds. 30 pounds, it's affecting the muscle. Same thing in learning. If a person learns 2 plus 2, it's 4. It doesn't affect the brain. If you learn difficult math, difficult gemara, difficult halacha, it's training the brain to become better and better over the months. After 7-8 months, you come, oh, this person is sharp like a knife. Everything want to, as soon as you make a beep, he got it. Intuition, it's clever. He puts things together. He even reads sign body language. Why? It's, the brain works so fast. It's like a computer. Some computers are old and slow. You press a button, three minutes you sit to wait until it change. Some computer, before you even touch, the computer up right away is working, right? Quick, quick download, quick upload, quick changing, entering the internet, everything, one, two, three. One, the engine, the, the brain of the computer is very massive. It's brand new, no viruses, no problem, no bugs, none of these things. It's computer working. The brain, the same thing. The more you train in, the better it performs. One more thing. You know, now in Israel, in the month of Elul, there was a horrible accident. One poor driver, I say poor because sometimes to be the driver who drive a car when people get killed in your car, it's just like to die with them. Because they die and they're dead already, and you die, you're walking, but you're dead. He drove a whole family, all religious family, the train came, he got, he tried to cross the track, the train came full speed, hit the car, made him fly, who knows, and they all died instantly, and he got saved. He's a religious driver. Just a few days ago, a few days ago, they show in the Haredi newspaper, the grandfather of that family, Rabbi Bernstein, hand to hand with the driver who supposedly killed his whole family, Hand by hand, hugs together, they went to Rabbi Ovadia Yosef to get a blessing. So they interviewed him. So oh, I see you became friends. Not only you're not enemies, you became friends. So the driver says, like my new father. And the guy says, why should I not be his friend? It's his fault that my family died. All my family got wiped out. This is God's decision. Why should I blame him? It would happen one way or the other. It's not fair to put the blame on him. I'm, I'm sad for him that God used him as a messenger for this horrible tragedy. But not only suffering for what happened, I'm going to blame him. That's like not believing Hashem. It's like no God here. We do everything. No. Either I believe in the Torah or I'm fake. And I'm not fake. That's it. You know what was the response of the Chilonim, of the secular people when they saw it? First of all, most of them didn't buy it. They can't digest 
that a person that his whole family, grandchildren, his son or his daughter, I'm not sure from which side is the grandfather, died in a car, and not only he doesn't hate the driver, not only he's not wishing for him to be in jail for the rest of his life, because soon he has a trial now. He has to be, to prove that he was innocent, that he didn't do something wrong. Not only is not wishing bad for him, became his best supporter, his best friend. They can't understand it. How can it be? But those who got it, psh, what a kiddush Hashem. What a lucky guy. Even from his tragedy, nobody wished to himself such a tragedy. It's the worst thing you can think of. But even from that, he gained so much. He affected tens of thousands of chilonim to become closer to Hashem. What do you think? It's affecting them. Here, I tell you a story that happened. One rabbi from Ramat El-Khanan, it's a religious neighborhood in Israel, he took, he pulled a cab from Tel HaShomer, it's where the hospital in Israel, Tel HaShomer, to Ramat El-Khanan. I don't know, half an hour ride, whatever it's supposed to take. As he's driving with the driver, first of all, as soon as he came into the car, he asked the driver how much. The driver gave him a double price. Supposed to be three, 30 shekel or 40, he told him double. But the religious rabbi did not make a beep. He took out the money right away and he paid him and said, Here is the money up front, take it. Usually nobody pays up front. Everybody pays when the ride is finished. But that rabbi gave him the money. After driving 10 minutes, he's talking to him, Divre Torah, beautiful, nice things. And the driver is not religious, completely. But the driver is listening, you know, dri cab drivers, they meet all kinds of people, positive, negative, all kinds of people. So he's listening to him, and he's enjoying to talk to him. You see, he's a very important person, nice, elegant, smart. Then after 10 minutes, he says, oh, here is my friend here at the light. His friend, his neighbor from Ramat El-Khanan, also a religious rabbi. So he said, one second, he opened the window, he said, hey, how are you? He said, well, come with me, I'll take you. His friend said, so he said to the driver, please forgive me. I want to, please stop right here on the side and let me get off, but I don't want to take the money back from you. You keep the whole money. So the driver said, no, no, it's not fair. I'm going to take the whole money. I have to give you two-thirds of the money back, he said. The driver, which is not religious, obviously is affected from the behaving of this person. It's affected him right away. That's the way it is. If you are around holy people, they're affecting you as well. If you're around negative people, you become like them eventually, just a matter of time. You know what they say, tell me who your friends and I tell you who you are. That's a very smart say, because it's proven. It's been proven. So guess what happened here? He said, wait, Rabbi, what, you're going like this? I enjoy talking to you. What's your telephone number? So he gave him his own telephone number, and he left. Two or three days later, he comes home at night, he gets a phone call. So, who is on the other line? The driver. Can I speak to Rabbi such and such? The wife gives him the phone. Rabbi, I missed you. How are you? You got him. <laughs> so he says, my wife wants to say something to you. So he gets the wife comes on the phone. She says, I don't know what you did to my husband. From the minute you got into his cab, all he talks about is religion. He, can, he never met a guy like you. He said, look at this guy, he gave me all the money, even though he, he got off, he didn't want it back. The driver wanted to give it. He said, no, I won't take it back. So he said, me and my wife has a lot of questions. Can we meet with you? 
He said, can you come to my house right now? I said, yes. So they took, you know, they took a ride, they came to his house in Ramat El-Khanan. So as they see, the wife put some food, they see, they talk to them together. So he said, we decided that we want to be like you. We don't like our life the way it is with our friends. We want to change. We're not happy. And we want you to help us to become religious, like how to tell us how to, how to do, how to keep shy. So the rabbi's wife was crying. She was so happy. So from here you see, what does it mean, Kiddush Hashem? This, only what did the rabbi do? He gave up 60 shekel, whatever. He behaved like a gentleman. You know, and it's affected the person so much, he became religious with his wife, and the rest of the story, I don't know, maybe by now they have kids that are religious, grandkids, who knows how long that story was. To show you that what you do when people look at you, you're not always paying attention. It's how you behave at work, in your business, if you have a store. People, a store, a religious guy that has a store, have no idea how many people he can turn closer to Hashem by his behaving alone. How greedy he is about money, customer who return products. Sometimes it doesn't pay for the two five dollars to fight. No problem, smile. You can, you can earn for five dollars eternity. Or if you go to the gas station and they go pump gas in your car, whatever, it's $40, and you give him $1, for him is a very big thing. Because if every customer give him a dollar, it's going to be an extra salary for him. But it's not the dollar. It's, look at the Jew. He gave me, he gave me this tip, or whatever the case. Sometimes I go on a, on a, on a I don't have patience to wait until there's two or three guys and there's 20 cars, 30 cars waiting online. One, many years ago, since I'm there 15 years on that road, so one of the old workers gave me the code how to turn the pump to pump to work. He told me, you press this code, you press enter, receipt, yes or no, and I know how to pump. Saves me a lot of time. I imagine every night I have to wait five, seven, ten minutes until they get to you. So, you know, so sometimes I put, and by the time I finish, I see he's walking near, and I have to give him the money. I give him anyway the tip. He didn't do anything. He didn't pump, nothing. He looks at me like a zombie, like a, oh, thank you, my man, thank you, my friend. <laughs> you know, for one dollar, you know what a mitzvah you can earn? What a big deal, a dollar more, a dollar less. It's not going to make you richer or poor. It's the idea that now he's going to his friend. So this guy putting completely the gas by himself and still give me the tea. And this guy, I did everything for him and he gave me nothing. And right away he said, oh, I guess the Jews are really special. And that's called Kiddush Hashem. And sometimes Kiddush Hashem is peanuts. It could be a quarter. You know, in Monsi, there's a Getty gas station. It's owned by a religious guy, but he's never there. So there's one or two Indian guys, Goim, Indian, from India, working on the registers. And inside, you know, you have all the candies and all the drinks. So outside, they don't have an automatic system that you pay and they open you X amount of gas for based on how much you pay, that you cannot go over. So you have to go inside, you tell him how much you want, and you pay him the money, and you go outside, but you can go over. If you, if you bought only $40 and you put 50 he sees it inside, but there's nothing he can do. You can run away. It's a very primitive system that they have. So the Jews, they come, they don't know how much to give him because they want to put full tank. So some of them don't run inside to pay fares. They first put, 
50, 60, whatever it comes to, and then they go and pay. One time I asked him, I told him, all these years that you work here, did it ever happen that somebody put gas and didn't pay you? Because every, all the customers are religious Jews there. It's in the heart of Monsi. All the customers there. So he said, never. He's not even worried. You see, from the window, you're far away. By the time he comes out, you run. People put gas, and he's busy with customers. They're always going to come and pay. He's not worried. How, world, how the world would be if all the people in the world would be like this? Great. You have to worry. They break into your home. They break into your car. You can leave everything in your front yard. You don't have to worry. You know. Great. Half of the police that you have, you didn't need. You didn't have all this. We make our life more miserable than what it's supposed to be. You know, in the times of the Romans, when they occupied Israel, there was the Adrianus, was the Caesar. One time you ride on a horse with soldiers, and you see a Jew. He's planting a fig tree. Figs. So he said to the Jew, is 100 years old. Very, very old man, hardly walk, trying to plant a tree. He put some water. So the king told him, what, you out of your mind? In your age, you're still planting a tree. By the time this tree will have fruit, you'll be already in the next world. So the old men say, maybe you're right, maybe not. But even if I will go to the next world, worse comes to us. I'll do it for my children and my grandchildren. The figs that I ate in my life, who made it for me? My grandfather. <laughs> my grandfather planted for me. I plant for my grandkids. That's how it goes. But maybe I will have the merit to eat from this fruit. So the king told him, listen, I'm, re- I'm asking you, if you have the merit to eat from this tree, I want you to come to my palace and tell me that you will live to that day that you can eat from this tree. I'm very curious to know. No. A few years later, the Jew is eating the figs and enjoying. This is the days that the figs didn't have plenty of worms like today. The fruit were clean from all the worms. So he enjoyed the figs and in Eretz Israel, they sweet like honey. And he made a nice basket and he goes to the palace and he's at the soldier asking him, you see an old man, he's not a threat. What are you doing here, Grandpa? I brought it for the king. Okay, let him in. He goes in. He brings it to the king. He says, remember me? A few years ago, you passed by my, my yard, and I planted a tree. Here are the fruits. So he says, the king was laughing. Oh, amazing. Say to his soldiers, come, all of you ate some figs. Eat some figs. Make sure when you're done, fill his basket with coins of gold. <laughs> won the lottery. He went to bring him figs. They fill up the basket, all full of gold. Story that happened. The Gemara brings the story. The Midrash, actually. It's in Midrash Rabbah. The neighbor, the wife, saw <laughs> her friend's husband came up from the king from lots of gold. So she told to her husband, get up, you lazy bum. The king likes figs. Fill up a basket with nice figs and go. Maybe we also get some gold. So he took a nice basket, even bigger. He comes to the king. He says, your majesty, I heard you like figs. I chose the best figs for my trees. Here, please. So the king told him, stand by the wall. Stand over there. And he called up all the soldiers and said, each one of you take a fig and throw it on his face. So the poor guy is standing all day. 
everybody throw figs at him. So then he comes home, he has all these dirt on him. His wife says, what happened? Where are the gold? Say, gold, huh? You're lucky I'm alive. I should never listen to your advice. <laughs> when they all everyone threw figs at me. So the wife told him, you know, you're so lucky. Imagine if it would be a trogim. <laughs> a trogim. <laughs> they throw a trogim at you, they'll kill you. At least figs are soft. <laughs> figs are soft. <laughs> so the idea from this story, what do we learn? It's not what you do, it's how you do and what's the reason behind it. The old man didn't think I'm coming to sell it to the king to make money. I respect the king, I bring it to him, the king paid him full top dollars. The other ones, he cares about the king. He wants money. You know, one rabbi in Iraq, in Baghdad, a hundred years ago, he goes to shul on Shabbat, and on the way to shul, he hears from one of the houses in the back, young guys, instead of coming on Shabbat morning to the shul, they play backgammon. He hears the dice. <laughs> yeah, 20 bucks, 30, 40, yeah. they make money. He said, Jews on Shabbat gamble on money? I gotta go and see what's going on. He goes to the back, he see they all saw the chief rabbi coming. <laughs> rabbi, forgive us, please, mechila. <laughs> No, no, Rabbi, here, let's take all the money, T take it with you for tzedakah. Take the money, just forgive us for the. So the Rabbi said, I'm only forgiving you if you promise never to do it. So, okay, hey, it will never happen again. Okay, come to shul. Okay, they get dressed, they go to shul. Three, four months later, he started to see they disappeared again from the shul. They're not coming. He said, let me go by their house, see what's going on there on Shabbat. He stands over there by the, by the fence, and here again they play Sheshbesh. He hear the dice. So I'm going to teach these guys a lesson. He comes inside, say, Rishayim, you're not embarrassed. So all of them saw him. You again? They got up. Boom, they're beating him up, throwing chairs on him. They run after him. They kick him in the street. <laughs> oh, I... So, so he couldn't understand what's happening. The next day he goes to the Ben Ishchai. He was the chief rabbi of all Iraq and Persia. Rabbi, this is what happened to me. First time I came, kiss my hand, Rabbi, forgive us, please, take the money, it's the car, charity. Now I came, psh, they kicked me, they threw, they pulled my beard. What happened here? So the rabbi said, the first time it bothered you, the violating Shabbat. You went to do a mitzvah, you didn't know you're going to get money. They're going to kiss your hand. He went, whatever happened, happened. You took the risk. You cared about Hashem. Hashem helped you. He softened their heart. Because you came to do it, L'Shem Shamayim, for the sake of heaven. Second time, you didn't care so much about Shabbat. What did you really care about? You knew a, there's a bag full of money there. They'll give you the money. They'll get embarrassed. You get all the money again. This was top priority for you. Maybe also you thought about the mitzvah. But now I was already involved with money, and Hashem wanted to teach you a lesson. That when you come to do mitzvah, to bring Jews back to the Torah, you have to come for the mitzvah. If they give you money, Baruch Hashem. If not, also Baruch Hashem. Don't worry, Hashem will, will feed you. But the idea is, first of all, I go. And whatever happens later, it's in your hand. That's the only way to be successful. All the other ones give me this, give me that, I want that, I want this, I want a driver, I want a... 
In the end, they all disappear. The ones who work and for Hashem Shamaim, it may take 50 years to be successful. All these Rabbanim that we read their books from 50 years ago, from 100 years ago, some of them, nobody knew who they are until they died. Once they died, the whole world find out. Wow, look at this, look, read. They printed their books. In their time, it wasn't even printed. One last thing for today. You know, the people of Tiberia, in the time of the Gemara, the king sent them a note that they have to prepare a jewel full of diamonds, necklace, for the king. Cost fortune, such a thing. So all the people of Tiberia has to participate to make him the jewel. That's like taxes. For his birthday, whatever, who knows. Who was in charge of the Rebbe? Rabbi Yehuda Anasi. That was in his generation. So Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, is, uh, they come to him and say, Rabbi, tell us how to divide the cost of the necklace. So he say, all the rabbis who sit and learn Torah are dismissed. They don't have to pay a penny for this necklace. Only the people who work and they go to work and they don't come full day to yeshiva, they have to pay for the necklace. So, so it, was, it was about half of the people of Tiberia that goes to work in the market, you know, shoemaker, farmers, whatever. So they come to him and say, what is this? It's not fair. Why they're not going to pay? So he said, they're not, they're not. the Torah said that the Talmidei Chachamim don't have to pay taxes to the government, to the kingdom. They don't, they're dismissed. So they said, no, so we're going to run out of Tiberia. We'll take our stuff and run away. We're not going to stay here to pay for it. We're going to pay their share. So you can do whatever you want. I'm not holding you. Half of the people who goes to work every day escape from Tiberia. So now, if it was, let's say, whatever, let's say 10,000 people, and 5,000 of them were not, were not learning, now 2,500 of them ran, ran away. So now it's only 2,500 left. So now they come. It wasn't such big numbers. It was much less. But now they come to him and say, so what do you expect now? Now we're going to pay for the rabbis, and we're going to pay for these people who ran away. We're going to pay. 25% of the population will pay for the other 75%. So the rabbis say, yes, that's the halacha right now. They escape, they escape. You are here, you have to pay for it. So we also gonna, we also will run away. We're not going to stay and pay. So you can do whatever you want. So the next day, they all made one demonstration. They decided to leave town. Everybody took his horse. Now you have to remember, in the old days, it wasn't like today. Today, if you have to move, semi-trailer all the way from here to Main Street. <laughs> a few times, take these. Just the shoes of your wife need a semi-trailer. <laughs> In the old days, <laughs> what did you have to put? You put a few books, your tefillin and talit. Everybody had maximum one suit for the weekday and one suit for Shabbos if they're lucky. A table and four chairs, and that's it. There's nothing else to take. No aquarium, no fee, no televisions, no piano, none of these things. No refrigerator, no ovens, no whatever you say. There's none. There's really nothing to take. Few. And the mattresses wasn't like today, big and massive. What did they sleep on? A little mat on the sand. The floor of the house was sand. They put a mat and they sleep. 
So believe me, in two hours, you're on the road already. So they all left. Just when they all left, Tiberia left only with learners. Few hours after they all left, a soldier came to Rebbe, you the chief rabbi? Yes, here is from the king. So they opened the envelope. He say, the king decided that he's not interested in a necklace. The decree is canceled. So Rebbe came to the shiva and said to the, to the learner, didn't I say to you that all the problems who come to us from the people who does not learn Torah, they all escape. There's no reason for taxes anymore. Why Hashem send all the taxes? Because of that. That's what the Torah says. Why tell me the Chachamim don't have to pay taxes to the kingdom that occupied Israel? Because the taxes and the decrees doesn't come because of them. It comes from the people who does not learn. The people who does not learn Torah, they only care about business and money, they bring the problems to us. That's what he says. And that's, they say, you see, this is what I told you, and this is in reality what happened. You should know, the halacha is, that the Talmidei Chachamim, those who sit and learn Torah, they don't have to go to the army, they don't have to make roads. You know, so when they used to make roads, they have to chop trees, take them out, take the roots out, move the rocks, make it straight. So it's very hard work, it's all manually. There's no tractors like today, they come. So right away, they called, they made an announcement on Wednesday, everybody has to take a day off, come, we're making a new road. Those who learn Torah don't have to come. Automatically they dismiss. A war, they don't go. They, they come to sell their merchandise, let's say they want to sell. They come to the market, all the people that it's their job, they have to close their mer merchandise, their boot, until the Talmud Chacham sell all his merchandise. Once he's done and he left, they are allowed to open. There's rules. Why these rules? Why Hashem made it like this? Because he's interested that every Jew wants to be a Talmud Chacham. He has to give an incentive for people who doesn't do it for the mitzvah. At least they see the benefits that they have in this world, so they want to come. That's, what, that's called mitoch shelo lishma balishma. If it starts not for the sake of heaven, if you're constantly doing it, eventually it will be for the sake of heaven. Okay, thank you very much. Chag Sameach to everyone. And... Uh,